Psalms. Anyone remember which one we're in? Oh, you're just a few off. 83. That's right. Don, I'm really proud of you, man. There he is. He won the award tonight. Psalm 83. Let's uh, pray before we begin. Father, we just thank you so much for this instruction manual on worship, on prayer, this instruction manual on just how to have just a real relationship with you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you'd speak to us tonight through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the Psalms are so much a part of my life. I've been through them so many times. I've shared many times that just for years, uh, I just started off on Psalm 1, did a Psalm a day. I got to 150, went right back to Psalm 1 and did it all over again, over and over. And it's just wonderful teaching through the Psalms. I feel like they're part of they're part of me, and I, I really want that for you. There's so much about worship and being real before the Lord. And verse 1 of Psalm 83, it says, Do not keep silent, O God. So maybe uh, one or many of you are in that place, a place in your life where you're like, Lord, do not be silent. You're in some kind of situation. You want the Lord to not be silent. Do not keep silent. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And they're causing, they're stirring up trouble and destruction. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. That's a way of saying they're, they've become proud. It speaks of Lucifer and in the Old Testament, sort of lifting up his heart, lifting up his head. It's, it's meaning, it's a way of putting themselves in a position above God. And that's the original sin, right? That uh, Eve was tempted by Satan. You can be like God. And, and, and when you read in the, in the Bible, this expression, lifting up the head or lifting up the heart, it's an expression of pride. Verse 3, they have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. And that's the wonderful thing about uh, being in relationship with Jesus Christ is that we are told that the Lord is our shelter. We are sheltered ones. And uh, the Bible says we live under the shadow of His wings. And so it says, they've consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have come and let, and said, they have said, come and let us cut off, cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be, may be remembered no more. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria who has joined with them, they have helped the children of Lot. So, uh, this is a confederation of nations, actually Arab nations, who 3,000 years ago, they believe this is a reference to, actually was talking about it this morning in Second Chronicles chapter 20, when the, a confederation of nations came against Jehoshaphat. 
And so many of them, there were so great multitude, he, he, he called a fast and gathered all the people together and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the Lord struck the multitude and was defeated. But uh, some commentators actually feel like this is a prophetic psalm. Some of the psalms in the Bible are prophetic nature, in nature, meaning there's a prophetic element to them. And psalm 22, for example, is all about Jesus on the cross. It's striking, that psalm. Jesus on the cross. But some believe this is a uh, confederation of, uh, of nations, that uh, a, a similar confederation that is going to come against, e, uh, against Israel in the time of the tribulation, the Bible does teach that in, in the end times, and the, there's going to be a, conf, a confederation of ten uh, countries led by the Antichrist that is going to come against Israel. And here you have ten nations coming against Israel. And some people think that this is a, a sort of a prophetic kind of psalm. If you uh, trace each of these countries here, Edom, Moab, Hagarites, each of them, there's a distinct geographic region of different peoples that actually live uh, today. So uh, some people think this is uh, prophetic in nature. They're, they're coming against uh, the Lord. And, you know, it's, it, it's interesting here. In verse 5, where it says they form a confederacy against you. You know, when people come against the church, they're coming against Jesus. When people came against Israel, they came against Him, the Lord. When the Apostle Paul, before he was saved, gloriously saved, he traveled from city to city, jailing and arresting people, sending them off to prison because they believed in Jesus Christ. And he was extremely angry with the faith, the true faith, the idea that the Messiah had come, that Jesus had come. And when he was on his way to Damascus, what happened? The Lord appeared in a great light, knocked him off his donkey. And what did Jesus say? Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? So when someone comes against you because of your Christian faith, they are persecuting God, Jesus Christ. And that's a heavy thought. And some, many of us have such a low opinion of ourselves, it's hard for us to imagine that someone coming against us is equivalent to coming against God. But the Word of God says that. That's the kind of value that the Lord has in you. Tremendous value. God loves you so much. You are a member of the body of Christ. Christ, representative on earth. Verse 9 says, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera. That's referring to uh, Midian, referring to uh, Judges 7, where Gideon de defeated the, uh, the Midianites, as with Sisera, that was, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, that's where Deborah, one of the judges in the book of Judges, defeated, uh, her, her enemies there. 
Verse 10, who perished at Endor, who became his refuse on the earth, make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all the princes like Zebla and Zalmanah, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastors of God for a possession. And so these are, verse 12, are sort of the enemies of, uh, of God. And I was just reading the other day about people uh, who are... Uh, opposing homeschooling in this country, and one of the reasons they're opposing homeschooling is they're just outraged that uh, uh, kids are being raised uh, to follow Jesus Christ, and kids are being raised, t- being taught creationism. And they were uh, they were interviewing this this professor, and uh, you know how he thought it was outrageous the whole uh, concept of uh, homeschooling. And really, the message of these people is is we need to give get these kids. Uh, verse like just like verse 12 we need to take them for ourselves and the we need to get their pastors for a possession their children for a possession and uh, the the enemies of the Lord are doing that to this day but the fact of the matter is as we saw in verse 5 they're forming a confederacy against God God himself when they come against his people it's a comforting, comforting thought. It should be a comforting thought to you and to me. Verse 13, Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chafe before the wind. Remember what chafe is, right? Chafe is when you are harvesting wheat and you get those grain out and you, uh, you, you, you throw up what is the heads of the wheat and the bad stuff is blown away by the wind and the good stuff uh, comes down and you make bread out of it. Make them like chafe before the wind, as the fire burns the woods, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with the tempest and frighten them with your uh, your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your, you, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And so those who think this is a picture, a prophetic picture of actually the tribulation times, the end of the tribulation time, uh, believe verses 13 through 18 is a picture of many of the people on earth who are living during the tribulation time. Now remember that uh, the Bible teaches that prior to a seven-year tribulation, the end times before the coming uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be a seven-year uh, tribulation time. and uh, But prior to the tribulation ta- time, Jesus is going to come for his church and take them out and spare them of the tribulation. The Bible says in, the, in, in 1 Thessalonians, among other points, the children of God, the church is not appointed to wrath. And the tribulation period is all about a time of wrath. And it was just, um, you know, and, and, and we as Christians are always supposed to be living in expectation of Christ's return. And we don't know the hour. We don't know the day. We can't even know the season, the Bible says. But uh, Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body. Wow, am I looking forward uh, to that time. But after the rapture of the church, uh, 
hell, literally, is going to break loose on earth. And uh, they, some believe that verses 13 through 18 is, is a picture of that. The many people on earth, as, as the judgment and the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, instead of turning to Christ, they're going to be shaking their fist at God. They're going to be hiding. They're going to be uh, uh, f- very frightened. And so where it says in verse uh, 15, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your uh, with your storm, that's just like a picture of uh, in the end times. It's not a play, a time, uh, or a place that we have any interest in being in. And if you're here tonight and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, I suggest that you don't leave here tonight before doing that, because the time of tribulation is is going to be a time where just enormous calamity up to a third of the earth or something like that is going to die as the judgments are are being meted out during the tribulation period and there are going to pe- be people during that time who come to the lord it's going to be 144,000 jewish men and who are going to become evangelists and witness for the Lord during that time. And But it's going to be a very intense time, a time of judgment. Psalm 84, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And you know, what I want so much for every one of you sitting here is that, man, that you come to the place where this is real for you. Where you can read this and go, oh man, this just resonates. My soul longs, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh, verse 2, cry out for the living God. That's the work that God wants to do in your heart. That's the work of grace that God wants to do in your heart. You know, I grew up in different churches. They were not churches that taught the Bible. Never knew about being born again. Never knew about a relationship with God in the churches I grew up in. uh, They didn't believe in the Bible. I didn't know you could have a relationship with God where you longed, you even fainted for the courts of the Lord, your, your, that your heart and flesh cried out. That was religious fanatics who thought things like that. But how wonderful it is when we learn that, man, this is what life, this is what we live for. It's not for lucrative careers, although if you have one, the Lord wants to bless you with, with one. Praise the Lord. It's, it's not about... Uh, you know, athletic accomplishments. It's not about who can get entertained the most and the longest with whatever. It's about worshiping God. And so in, in, in Psalm 84, this is someone who is familiar with the temple where David had instituted uh, worship. And David and Solomon, night and day, there were singers who sang all night in the temple. 
And this is someone who's away from the temple. They're probably way away from Jerusalem. They're not thinking about the palace. They're not thinking about this incredible temple that's there, one of the ancient eight wonders of the world. Or Is that how many there were? Eight wonders? How many? Six? Seven? Seven wonders of the world? <laughs> you know, they're, they're not thinking of the feasting that went on in Jerusalem. There's a lot of prosperity there. They're not thinking about... Uh, you know, the king's table and, and, and the wonderful, the wine, the finest wine and the food there. No, they're thinking about the courts of the Lord. And oh, how I want every single one of you sitting in here to reach the place where your heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts. And so, um, in the temple, there's this, there's swallows, like hanging out in the temple. There's sparrows who have nests in the temple. And this guy is jealous. He goes, man, I remember those sparrows back in the temple. Those little worthless birds, you know, he, he, he's thinking, remember what Jesus said. He, he said, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, yet not one sparrow falls uh, to the ground without your father knowing. A, a farthing is, what, half a penny or something like that? Is, if you know, cry out. It's something like that. They're basically worthless. Swallows, uh, a, a bird known for just being restless. They have very weak feet, so they're always sort of on the run. They don't. And they don't even sing. They can't sing. They chirp, you know. But uh, So you have worthless sparrows and restless swallows. And this guy's thinking, they get to be in the temple amidst all that worship. And yet, you know, as, as, as worthless as, as sparrows are and, and restless as swallows are, you know, we you may... Think of yourself like that, you know, no money, I don't have money, I don't have a degree, I don't have a great achievement for the, for in, in the world or whatever, but in the house of the Lord we're valued. You may be a, a sparrow, worth very, very little in the world's eyes, but in the house of the Lord. It's a place to nest, to settle in where I'm not restless like I am in other places. And just speaking with someone with this morning where, oh man, they were just all wound up and bound up. And they just were able to come into the service this morning just with the worship and the fellowship and just the release. Praise the Lord. My soul longs yet, yes, Faint for the courts of the Lord. Do not try to convince me that you can be a Christian apart from coming to church. There's no such thing in the Bible. It's so much a part of the life of a believer in Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. The church may be a you know, it's a hospital for the sick. Yes, there are hypocrites there. Yes, there are people with issues. Yes, you know, there's people there that are not walking uh, the walk. 
but it's the bride of Christ. That's what the church is. Jesus loves the bride of Christ. So the psalmist, longing for it. Verse 5, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Now, you know, from time to time, the issue comes up, you know, of whether a person's questioning their salvation. And they've been backsliding, or they're in a place where they haven't been in the body of Christ. And, and I would say the number one thing to me, which is a mark of a true believer in Jesus Christ, is this right here, this verse. Blessed is the man who strengthens you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. What, am I, what do I mean by that? What is a pilgrimage? Pilgrimage is, we're on a pilgrimage. If, if, if you've been saved, if you've really been saved, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. The Bible says when that happens to a man or woman, their heart is set on pilgrimage. A pilgrimage to what? A pilgrimage to heaven. And so as many times as they may fall on the, side, on the wayside, they come back. They come back to the Word of God. They come back to the body of Christ. And a person who comes back and comes back and comes back, it's not the will of God for their life. Not the will of God for anyone to backslide. No one has to backslide ever. It's what the Bible says. The normal Christian life, the Bible defines, is a, is, a, is a life without backsliding. But there's grace for the backslider, the Bible says. But someone who's really saved and given, made Jesus the Lord of their life, the Bible says their heart is on pilgrimage. They will come back. They'll come back to the Word. They'll come back to the Lord. This is a wonderful, wonderful verse. It says, their heart, uh, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. You may have a footnote there. It means weeping. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And this is just a picture of the the spirit-filled Christian life. The spirit-filled Christian life where you pass through the valley of weeping. And let me tell you, the world is a valley of weeping. The world is a place of just suffering and sorrow. But you make it a spring. And, you know, this, this word is just a conviction to my own heart this evening. Is my life making the environment that I'm in, wherever I'm at, a spring? Is it turning the valley of Baca, valley of weeping, into a spring? Just let, let the word of God just do a work in, in your heart tonight with that. That is a picture of the Christian life. Now, this is probably referring to in the Mosaic law three times a year, 
every male Jew was required to go to Jerusalem three times a year for, for the feasts. The Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so these sometimes entire villages and cities of Jewish people that go to Jerusalem, there would be singing, there would be praising the Lord, and they'd be, just be going through these pagan areas of, of, of the world at that time, which were just dried up, just valleys of weeping, and they would just make it a spring of joy, just through the singing and the praise. And that's the picture of the Spirit-filled life. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah means pause. Anytime you see that word Selah in the Psalms, it means, okay, pause and think about that. This is a reminder to us that these are songs, and even in our worship songs, we're not supposed to be just running through our worship songs on at our, at our Sunday services or whatever service without reflecting on what we have said and sung. So it says, pause. Think about what you've just sung. Think, think about what you've just read. Verse 9, O oh God, behold our shield. It's one of the names of God. He's our shield. He's your shield. In the Bible, God has names. But it is not like, you know, Bob, Frank, or Mary. His names are who he is. One of his names is Shalom, God our peace. Another one is Shield. And look upon the face of your anointed for a day in your court is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. From time to time in the Old Testament and in the New, actually, the word wickedness is synonymous with rich. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the rich, of the wealthy. Man, do I want this for every single one of you here tonight. I really do. If you're not there already, that really, 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 you believe that one day with the Lord in His courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I remember one of the most picturesque stories of this is with Moses there in the wilderness for 40 years and there's just it's just misery out there and if you've ever looked at a picture of Mount, of the the Sinai Peninsula where they were in the wilderness it's just shocking that that whatever it was two or three million people could possibly live there and the people rebelled and complained and murmured even though they were getting manna every morning God was providing for them their shoes weren't wearing out they complained anyway at one point, the Lord says, you know, you guys, you've been complaining so much. He said to Moses, you guys go up into the promised land where there's these wonderful vineyards. There's a land flowing of milk and honey, but I'm not going with you. And Moses said, what do you say? These wonderful words. He says, listen, if you're not going up with me, I'm staying here in this misery. 
because I'd rather be here in this wilderness with you than up there with all that wealth, all that prosperity without you. And I, I, man, this is what I just hope and pray for every one of us in this room. And we reach that place. And Hebrews chapter 11, I was teaching through it this morning. That the first four-fifths of, uh, of the chapter about wonderful deliverances that were by faith. And it takes faith to see the deliverances of the Lord. And we exercise our faith and the heavens open up and the power of God pours out and we'll see many deliverances. But the last fifth of, of that chapter is about people who were not delivered. It's people who were tortured. They hid in caves. It says they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were sawn in two. And just how, you know, we can exercise faith for deliverance, but it's the same kind of faith that we need to exercise when we're in a season of suffering. And the, the real issue is, Lord, whether you want me delivered, whether you want me in this trial or not, the, the real thing I want, Lord, is you. I want you, Lord. I want you. So whether I'm in the wilderness or in the land of plenty, in the promised land, I want you. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you're thinking, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I'm, I'm walking uprightly and man, I don't, I don't have a husband yet. Well, it says no good thing will he withhold. So apparently right now, that's not a good thing for you. You need to trust the Lord with that. Yeah, in your life. You know, I'm walking with the Lord and, you know, I, I, I don't have a job right now. I'm walking with the Lord and, you know, I'm in, I'm in this difficulty. Well... This says, no good thing will he withhold. And, and if we believe in the Lord and his sovereignty, that he knows best and what's good for us, we'll just trust our life to him. Verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Blessed is the man who trusts in you. Psalm 85, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins. Now, this is referring to when Israel came back from Babylon. If you remember, they, for hundreds of years, actually, they, so they came out of Egypt, went through the wilderness, went into the promised land. And for a period of, what was it, 800,000 years or something, they dwelled in the promised land, but after after a season after season after season after season of rebellion and disobedience and opposition to the lord they and warning that they, if they didn't turn back to the lord they were going to be exiled to babylon uh, finally it happened you know god may be slow in answering those kind of promises when they especially when they concern judgment but the judgment uh, he is storing up wrath for the day of judgment and so they were judged, they were sent, exiled away to Babylon, 
for a period of 70 years, but after 70 years, they came back. And it says in verse 2, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. And that is just so true. And I've talked about it before when they interviewed the, the head of the uh, mental facilities in California and they asked him, and he was just commenting uh, about the size of the population in the mental facilities, mental illness facilities, and he said, oh, if, the, if there was only a cure for guilt, we wouldn't have the problem we did to, uh, do today. And that's the truth. Blessed, verse Psalm 32 said, is the man whose sins are forgiven. And, and these people right now, they're coming back from uh, Babylon. It says, that, it says, you have covered all their sins. The sins have been forgiven. If you're a believer in Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you're not a believer in Christ, if you've never given your life to Christ, your sins uh, have not been forgiven. And the Bible says that the wrath of God remains upon you. And you have a choice. Either you can experience the punishment for your own sin, which is death and hell forever, or you can allow Jesus Christ to pay for your sin for you. And actually, He did. He experienced that punishment for you. But blessed is the man or woman who has given their life to Christ and their sins are forgiven. You know, when Moravian missionaries uh, went to Alaska, they were translating, I forget, I don't know what actually what language it was, but the Eskimos uh, did not have a word for forgiveness. Which, by the way, this is a huge problem. You read about some of these translation projects where you go to, uh, in the middle of nowhere, the jungle somewhere, and they don't have a word for river, because there's not a big river. I mean, I, I don't know. That's just an example. I don't even know if that's true. But there's lots of words in the Bible, but that that they don't even exist. You know where the people are. You know, like the woman at the well. Well, when there's not a well, and people they they don't know what a well is. How do you translate that? Well, there's a big problem when the word's forgiveness. So here's the word that they came up with. Iso Maja Jajunera Mika. Are you ready for that again? Iso Maja Jojuner Mika. Twenty-five letters. And this is what it means. Not being able to think about it ever again. The book of Jeremiah says that forgiveness, what really happens there is God remembers your iniquities no more. What sin haunts you when you think about your life? What sin comes to mind? The Bible says, that if you are in Christ, He remembers your sins no more. That means He'll never put it up in front of you. He'll never remind you of your sin. He'll never make it an issue. We remember our sin. 
Occasionally others remind us of our sin. But God does not remind us of our sin. Verse 3 says, You have taken away all your wrath and you have turned us, turned from the fierceness of your anger. The nation of Israel had been involved in child sacrifice, among many other things, to foreign gods. It doesn't make God happy. <laughs> God's storing up his wrath because of the abortion thing going on in this country. There's forgiveness, there's grace. But God is holy. And what kind of God would just be indifferent? to injustice and indifferent to sin and just the, some of the grievous evils that we see in this country today. Verse 4, Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause Your anger toward us to cease. Will You be angry with us forever? Will You prolong Your anger to all generations? Will You not revive us again that Your people may rejoice in You? Show us Your mercy, Lord, and grant us Your salvation. I will hear what, the, what, what God the Lord will speak. For He will speak peace to His people and to His saints. That's a really cool verse. Sorry if that's a trite description of the Word of God. But let me read it again. I will hear what the, uh, God the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to His people. If you are in Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, it's the wonderful thing about Him. He will speak peace to you. But let them not turn back to foolishness. So what's going on here is that the Jews in Babylon had turned away from their idolatry. In fact, when you read the Old Testament... They're always going back to idolatry. They come into the promised land and they were introduced there to all these sort of pagan temples and pagan gods, which, by the way, always involved sort of, you know, sensuality. There was temple prostitution and this type of thing. And they're always drawn into these pagan, foreign, false god things. And again, after about 800,000 years, they were exiled to Babylon. And when they came back, they never returned to that. They never returned to that kind of um, idolatry. And notice how it, what it says in this verse, though. It says, God will, speak peace, uh, God will speak peace to His people and to His saints, but let them not turn back to folly. And so oftentimes, you know, in this country where there is some kind of sin going on or someone's committed some sin and, or someone's in some kind of sin, something, some kind of lifestyle that's in opposition to the Word of God and they will, defending their lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle, their their lifestyle, which is in opposition to the Word of God, they'll, they'll quote Jesus and the adulterous woman. They'll say, hey, you know, let him who has not sinned cast the first stone. And you hear that over and over again. You know, someone who's been sort of caught in sin, and the person caught in sin will 
If you haven't sinned, then you shouldn't be bringing this sin up to me. But what did Jesus say to this woman? You know, he asked her a question after all her accusers left because he started writing down in the writing down on the ground and some people think he was writing their sins whatever i don't know what he was writing that's to be remain silent about it i guess because the bible doesn't talk about it but this adulterous woman if you're not familiar with the story was dragged before uh, jesus and she was caught in the very act of adultery and they they asked jesus so we, she's been caught in the very act of adultery. And the law of Moses said should, she should be stoned. What should we do? And that's when Jesus started writing down. And then he, he got up and said, let him who has not sinned throw the first stone. And one by one, uh, they they left. And after, so he stood up and asked the woman, where are your accusers? And and she says, there are none. They're all gone. And then he said, well, you know, I'm not going to accuse you either. And then he, what did he say? He said, go and sin no more. And so they had been exiled to Babylon. And sometimes we need to be exiled to a Babylon to get rid of our sin. But the, the Lord's message to us is, Okay, I'm giving you another chance. I'm a God of grace and I'm a God of mercy. But go and sin no more. It says, let them not turn back to their folly. Verse 9 says, Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Now just circle verse 10 and just put... Right, you can write down, you have my permission as if you need it, to write the word Jesus next to this uh, verse because this is Jesus. It's where mercy and truth, where judgment and mercy came together. God loves us, doesn't want to punish us uh, for our sins, but the truth, uh, God's truth, requires that the guilty not go unpunished. And so, mercy and truth come together at the cross where the price is paid. The guilty are not left unpunished. Jesus was punished for us. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. This is what happened at the cross where righteousness, meaning judgment and peace, all these things come together in the person of Jesus. Jesus was the only one who could have ever accomplished this. To join mercy and truth. To join righteousness and peace together. Verse 11, Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look uh, down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him and make His footsteps our pathway. And that is... Also, my prayer for everyone here this evening, that Jesus' footsteps would be our pathway. Verse 13 again, righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. 
Psalm 86, bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy, for you are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. It's a wonderful picture. Uh, this is a, back to a psalm of David. It's, it's interesting how the psalms of David are just really uh, stand out from the other psalms. Not that they're any better than the other psalms, but the guy was just gut-wrenchingly transparent with the Lord and real with him. And that's why, you know, where I began this evening, this is an instruction manual for prayer, an instruction manual for worship. Verse 3, I cry to you all day long, rejoice the soul of your servant. Mean just please bring joy to my heart. So he's despondent here. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O for you, Lord, are good. You're ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Attend to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. And so, you know, Jesus talked and gave parables about the persistent widow who you know, went to the judge who was evil and says he didn't care about men. He didn't care about justice. But because this woman was bothering him in the middle of the night, he went ahead and gave her what she wanted and was asking for. And Jesus told him that. And why did he tell him that? Well, he answered that. He said, so to, to, to demonstrate to you that you should never give up praying. So, you know, the Lord does sometimes, you know, we wonder, the Bible, Jesus does say, ask and it will be given, uh, knock and the door will be opened to you. Well, I'm knocking and the door's not open. Why? Well, because it's the, the Lord, sometimes He knows that if He immediately gives us what our desire is, we'll forget about Him. And we won't talk to Him. And, and so that's why, uh, so oftentimes the Lord has us in this position where, as, as David is, is, is saying here in uh, this Psalm, verse 3, crying out all day long and just not giving up. Verse 8, among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. I like that. You know, you hear the, the, the prayer sometime, Lord, give me an undivided heart. And, and, and sometimes our heart our hearts have multiple loyalties. And that always just leads us into a heap of trouble. 
Unite my heart to fear Your name. Give me singleness of heart. I will praise You, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify Your name forevermore. For great is Your mercy towards me, and You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life and have not set You before them, meaning they don't care about God. And, you know, the Lord will put us in these situations in our life which are just so intense. Here, a mob of violent men have sought my life that may not be happening to you, but maybe you have your, your boss at work is the equivalent of a mob of violent men or a mob of violent women. And you're just having to cry out to the Lord during the entire day. I've had bosses before who were tyrants. They were like a mob of violent men. And, and man, nothing got me closer to the Lord than the, the, these people. Nothing. Verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Don't let Satan lie to you. God is good and He means for your life good. He's full of compassion. He's gracious. That's what this word says. He's long-suffering. Meaning He suffers long with all your foibles, all your sins, all your bad habits, all your disobedience. And He's abundant. He's rich in mercy and truth. Verse 16, O turn to me and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So David has a history with God. He has a history with God, meaning that He's walked with the Lord for some time. He knows the Lord has always come through. He's always helped him. He's always comforted him. Now he's in a situation where he needs that comfort and he needs his help. And he's just reminding, he's speaking to his own soul here, that God has helped me in the past. He's comforted me in the past. He's going to do it again. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. So we'll close there uh, this evening.